and welcome to the very 129th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast that's literally all about board games. What's a board game? For the last time, I must stress that we do not know. And joining me today on our quest for understanding is a man who has played precisely one board game and had a bad time with it. It's the man with the hair, Matt Lees. Hello. Yes, this is the complaint line, right? I've played a board game. I've had a bad time. What are you going to do about it? You're speaking to big board games and big board games says, tough, throw it in the bin and start again. Just chuck it in the bin like the rest of us. Life is a legacy game. All right, just tear it up and move on. Hey, let's bring it down a notch and tell the audience, the listeners, the viewers with their ears what we're going to talk about on this podcast because it's one game and it's one game about business. We're going to talk about Carnegie. Carnegie? Isn't it not Carnegie? I think it's Carnegie. Carnegie. That's it. Yeah. Because it's Carnegie Hall. Carnegie. Carnegie Hall. Carnage. Absolute carnage. <laughs> we should put a disclaimer at the start of this that neither of us know how to pronounce Carnegie, Carnegie, Carnegie. I'm pretty sure it's Carnegie. Carnegie? Because of Carnegie. Carnegie Hall, etc. But that might be just... Is it not Carnegie Hall? But that's what I just said. I think. I'm going to Google it right now. You ready? Okay. How to pronounce Carnegie. Oh, Carnegie, says Google. Yeah, and so we got it right. Carnegie. Okay, so we've we've spent (laughs) a lot of time there just trying to work out how to say the word Carnegie. But crucially, we already knew how to say the word Carnegie because of the fact that it's a word which has been embedded into our society and culture via lots of institutions and locations and things that were left by a man who was called Carnegie. And now there is a board game about this man and his endeavours. And we'll come back to talk about the man and his endeavours a little bit later on the podcast, actually, because I think it's quite relevant to, certainly to my feelings about the mechanics of the game. Um, But first of all, I think we're going to just talk about the board game, which we've been playing quite a lot of, haven't we, Tom? We played a game of it in... So we've played all of our games of this so far on Board Game Arena. The actual game isn't due to come out for a while, I don't think. Um, And we played it on Board Game Arena uh, in real time. And then we immediately finished that game and went, oh, should we have another one? And played it asynchronously. And then we finished that game yeah. and went, oh, should we have another one? All in the course of one day, which felt like too much Carnegie, but also not enough. I would totally go for another. Yeah, <laughs> I found myself like really considering this morning being like waking up and being like, Tom, should we start another one before the podcast? But realizing it's like, no, Matt, you've got to do your tax return. You've got to, you've got to turn to the kitchen. <laughs> you really have to stop playing this game. But what a absolutely delightful puzzle. There's There's so many layers to it. And I don't really know where to begin. Just these interlocking puzzles where everything you do triggers something else to be happening. And everything you do has a significance to something else that's going to happen. These interlocking systems just absolutely melted me. For, for clarity, before we go on any further, we played three games. How many games did you win out of those three, Tom? Three. Three. So I've lost this game every time I've played it 
so far, which is a pretty grand record. But I'll make clear, I don't care. And I mean, often I don't care, right? But there's not been any sense in this of me having a frustration at the end of being like, oh, I, I couldn't quite grok how it worked. I could kind of see the systems and I knew what I was supposed to do and I knew how I was supposed to do it. I just didn't do it very well. And in some cases had misunderstood or misremembered key rules that meant my glass cannon tactics just shattered into a thousand pieces. But I think the key thing is it's such a satisfying puzzle to toy around with. If you told me now, and I think it would be a fair thing to tell me if you were just to calmly say, Matt, you are never going to win a game of this. I'm going to beat you every time, right? You're never going to beat me. You're going to get better, which has been happening. I have been getting better. But as you get better, I'm going to get better. And you're never going to cap me. I would simply say, okay, Tom, do you want to play again? <laughs> I'm happy with that like, because it's such a satisfying yeah. thing to do. I don't care if I never get good at it. Absolutely. I think that it's such a, like an interlocking system that if you push one thing just a little bit, the decisions cascade outwards from these little things, but not so much that the game feels like vast and unconquerable. It's very sort of like close and tight and that there are little sort of diversions you can take but generally speaking it's this very chunky core that you have to pass each turn and understand how each cog fits together perfectly i should probably tell people about how the game works generally yeah yeah we should probably roll back a little bit so essentially in carnegie each player has a personal board that represents their offices and in those offices there's a number of departments that have employees in them and everyone starts with the same set so collection of hr research, management, and construction departments. And each of those types of department corresponds to an action that a player can activate for that round. So I might choose on any round for me and Matt to both choose our construction departments to activate. And then everyone looks at their employees and resources and sees how much of that action they can take on this round. So if I activate construction, Matt might have two construction departments and I might have one construction department and we each might have some workers in them that can use resources to build buildings on this big central board of America. Or maybe your department gets you more resources or maybe it lets you research more buildings to place or get money or move your little people around your offices. But the big wrinkle here is that loads of these actions involve sending your little workers off onto the central board where you're placing these buildings on these things called missions. So you lose them from your company to go off and build a building somewhere. And the way you get them back is by doing that first action selection. Because when you pick an action to take, not only are you picking an action, you're also picking which corresponding region takes income, which lets you also grab all of your workers back. And for each worker you take back, you get a multiplier of income for that region. And what income you get is affected by how much research you've pumped into transport and what you've built. And gosh, it's very complicated to teach. I can't imagine teaching this game without the aid of Board Game Arena not giving you all those bumpers to stop you from doing wrong plays. Literally having to work out the rules because you want to do something and it won't let you. Or you think you should have got a resource and you didn't. Or you think something <laughs> should have happened and it didn't. That's the thing. Playing games on Board Game Arena is a blessing and a curse in some regards of the fact that it will not let you do something that you're not allowed to do. However, if you press a button and it doesn't pan out exactly as you expected... 90 well 50 percent of the time there's no button you can press to go back and not do that in a, in a way which in a game like this i had several times playing where if we were playing around a table i would have just looked up at you with fairly pleading eyes and said tom i've made a huge mistake is it okay if i just undo the thing that i just did to which you probably say yeah that's fine yeah but in this it's just like no you've made your bed you've done a absolutely gigantic poo in it and now you have to sleep in it <laughs> you've done an awful business poo and now you've got to roll around in it all night. That's this game. No, it's not this game. That seems very unfair. It was for me. 
but that's because I made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just a very strategic game. I'm usually somebody who actually prefers tactical games, games that allow you to just make a decision turn to turn, look at the situation and choose the best thing to do right now. But I feel like this game really doesn't reward that as much because of the fact that rather than some games like this where you're building up your office you're getting more workers you're getting more resources you're having turns that incrementally on these turns you're able to do more and more things that's kind of a traditional euroy game with a kind of business thing of being like make some steel turn the steel into things production production money money this felt quite different straight away and the fact that it wasn't just as simple as having parts of your company just getting better and better because yes you would build new departments within your offices but then you might have a shortage of staff because you'd sent off all these people on something that the manual hilariously called missions which is more like jobs really it's like can you go and do a job for me over here can you go and make some people build a house for me please yeah it's like you've built a house or like you've just got some money you've done something if you didn't have enough workers in your office then you would have to actually use the hr action in this world which mainly seemed to be just telling people to run around between offices which suggests an egalitarian multi-skilled worker which i appreciate of being like it doesn't matter that you work in sales you now work in, you know, I don't know, shipping. In HR, construction, whatever you fancy, take your pick. <laughs> especially because of the fact that in the starting building you have, you have your HR office right next to the lobby where workers come back to when they've returned from their dusty travels. So you have this idea that somebody has just gone off and built a railroad in the, the Midwest and then they arrive back knackered and immediately you just like pull them into a HR chair and just be like, sit there, you work in HR now quick there's also something really lovely about the fact that when your workers come back from missions they come back tired and they're just lying down in the floor <laughs> of your lobby just like knackered lying down then someone goes come on let's get you up pay you two pounds to stand behind this desk with that being the kind of head cannon for it the fact that you turn workers from being inactive to active by standing them up not when they arrive back in the lobby but when they have been taken to the department where they are now going to work as somebody just dragging somebody along this floor pulling them up in hate HR and being like, you work in HR now. I don't really know if the early 1900s had HR as a department, but let's not think about that too much. <laughs> Get to work. So you are going to be getting improvements, but in most games, you know, you're going to be improving one aspect of your engine and then that's going to be better and better and better. And you're incrementally going to get better until you just like, wow, points. In Carnegie, it didn't quite work like that. You might have these really great departments. But then you might have a situation where you have to rapidly shift some of your workers out of it somewhere else because you're aware that if you don't, you might miss out on a really big opportunity. And it did mean that you could have something whereby your engine could actually get worse. The second major difference is that sometimes in games like this, you will have maybe a shop of stuff coming up, maybe cards being dealt each round where you are going to be adapting as you go. In this, what you're doing is you are riding a business roller coaster. And the business roller coaster, the track for it, is visibly ahead of you before the game even starts. You have the shared shop of new types of room that you can add to your office and some of them are limited some of them are less limited you also have this map which shows you all the locations where you can potentially go and build stuff and depending on how many players you're playing with some of these things will be blocked off initially randomly so you're gonna be able to see that some of the areas on the map are inaccessible in a two-player game and actually that's pretty fixed but then some of the objectives as well which are kind of the point scoring things that we'll come back to in a bit are also going to be blocked off but then also you have this board 
that we talked about where each first player chooses what the action is for that round and then everyone activates that action. It means a couple of things. It means, first of all, you don't have control in the way that you usually do in a Euro game, right? Whereby usually you think, well, you know, I'm going to pull my farmers out of the farm, but that's fine because I'm not going to do my farm action next turn and then I can move them back into the farm and then it'll be fine. In this, you have... And I think this speaks mainly to the fact that we've been playing this as a two-player game and we haven't played it with more than two yet. It's a brilliant mind game in the fact that you are constantly having to second-guess what the other player is going to do on their next turn. Because if you end up in a scenario where they activate an action and you've just got no one in any of your buildings or you don't have the resources you need to run your buildings, that is pretty disastrous in a way which is wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's a waste of an entire turn. Like, if someone activates that and you don't have the things in the right place at the right time, your turn is just scrap. And there were so many times during that game where I was looking at a department where I was thinking, oh, if I take the construction action now, I've only got two workers and not quite enough resources to do it, but I'll still be able to do it. But Matt won't be able to do it at all. And that's me skewering one of your construction actions out of the game, you know, for good. <laughs> yeah. And this then drives us to the next thing, which is, I think, really amidst a real noodle salad of mechanics and rules, the thing thing that makes this shine is that this board that has the four different options of the four different actions you can take, whether it's activating your HR department, activating the building stuff, activating research development, or activating logistics. Each time you do that, you're going to select that row by putting a token on the next column along within that row. And you've got four different unique slots going left to right. And each time, you're going to move that little icon of that action along one space to the right. And the significance of that is that you're moving it onto spaces that have either a donation symbol or a symbol that matches an area on the map, which means you're not just saying, hey, this round, we're going to be doing research and development. You're saying we're going to be doing research and development this round, and we're going to be recalling workers from this area of the map. And this like little effectively it's like a spreadsheet this little grid of what's going to happen when is just there in front of you in the middle of the table for the whole game and it's weighted in an interesting way that i didn't really clock until maybe our second or third game because i'm a little bit slow tom why don't you explain how this works so the the way that the center of the action thing works is that you'll always have the four actions available but that center will be randomized each time so there's no guarantee that each of the regions on the board will take income an equal number of times throughout the game you have this thing where in our most recent game the whole of the south region was only going to take income once or maybe twice for the entire game and it was going to do it early this is what's so lovely about it is that you look at that you see that immediately you look at the board state you see what's blocked off and you can immediately start planning like an opening and say right all my investment is going to be into the south at the start i've got to get that really good and then after that i can focus on everywhere else but the fact is is that one of the bonuses at the end of the game is connecting all these regions so if you don't do your southern activity at the start of the game you've left those workers stranded in the south for much of the game i don't remember if that was randomized or if that board was just set and it was always like that because i think it was the same each time it's randomized every time there's a number of middle action rows you can have and they get shuffled every single time and you get a random spread i see so one one game the south could be incredibly valuable the order in which the regions activate can be different i think in our first game one of the things that happened was the donations that you can make which score you points at the end of the game for doing certain things so you might donate to 
education, I think, is one of them, which gives you points for having lots of workers that are standing up at the end of the game. That's an example. Effectively, these are, if you've played a game where there's a point in the game where you can take an action to take a special thing, that means at the end of the game, you're going to get more victory points for having done well in one particular aspect of the game. It's exactly that. It's just that in this, rather than it being a, a specific action that you have to take instead of doing a normal thing, which most of the time is a pretty feel bad thing, it's something that is naturally going to pop up at different times in the game. And again, you'll be able to roughly try and work out when by looking at the board in front of you and if you have the cash available you can choose to buy one of those things and each one you can only be bought once so it's like a case of trying to work out which ones you need to grab early and the other key thing that's quite interesting is the first donation is just five bucks but the second's 10 15 and i think it caps at 20 but it means that you can keep getting these but then going to get really expensive so keeping that cash coming in as the game goes on becomes yet another problem you have to juggle. On our first game, those two donation spaces were one of the first actions we could have taken. It was like straight out the gate, what are you going to donate to and what's going to get you points for this game? You're fixing it like immediately. And do you have the cash? You've got to have it now. So that game was shaped by us trying to get a lot of cash right at the start of the game to quickly dump onto these things and then being a little bit starved and having to wait a little bit to spin up our engines later on. Whereas in a different game, we could see that those donation spaces were coming way down the line. So we had the opportunity to set up a strategy strategy before then and then hopefully have the money but of course at that point in the game we were rapidly cycling we were using our income to rapidly cycle cubes and money constantly so whether or not we had that cash on hand was like a 50 50 chance at some points yeah and tactically nudging yourself onto that donation space at the right time because you know your opponent can't afford the next donation again that cuts out a whole extra opportunity to take that action for the rest of the game which is just like it's huge so juicy in a little two-player well in a very large two-player thing yeah and some of the decisions i was faced with were fascinating there was a point whereby i was pretty cash strapped and i had the opportunity to nudge onto a space which would have caused the midwest workers to all come home and then there to be an opportunity to do donations and at that point you were quite cash poor and you didn't really have any people in that midwest area and i had a lot of people there like maybe four or five workers just hanging around who got sent to make a railroad or a building ages ago who were just like when am i coming home this was probably the last chance they were going to have to come home anyway and i wasn't even confident that when i got them back i was going to be able to do anything with them but and again just add another wrinkle to this unbelievably granulated blancmange each area has a transport track as well which you can shift along using research points and then it means that when workers get pulled back from that area you get the bonus that you're currently on and there's a whole lot of complexity even within just that mechanic that we're not going to go into frankly but it meant that i was effectively going to make tons of money and i worked out that by doing this i was going to get this huge cash influx which would then allow me to buy a donation prize which seems pretty great the problem was I didn't need this action at all. I couldn't do anything with this action. Tom could do not much, but he could still do something. Whereas for me, it was completely worthless. And in the end, I didn't do that because I went with something where I was doing an action where I could have actually done something. In retrospect, I don't even think that was a good idea. I think I should have forced it at that point. And the fact that you have this looking ahead, not only of being like, okay, well, where am I going to send workers to? You've got options to send workers onto the map really quite frequently. And where do you want to send them? is just a fascinating puzzle of looking at that, looking at the options, of looking at what bonuses am I going to get from returning those people from that area? When are they likely to be able to come back? Like, yes, you've got this spread of like when each area is going to get recalled, but then you look, especially in a two-player game, the last game we played, Tom was going absolutely bananas for research. 
And so really looking at that research track. Oh, we haven't even talked about research. Anywhere along that track, any of those locations, the four locations listed, any of those would be fine. So it'd just be like, okay, I can put people there and I know I'll get them back like quite quickly or at some point. Whereas other ones were a big question mark. And even the fact that when you get the chance to recall people, you don't have to. A couple of times I left people there knowing that I was planning to make the rewards for that area better. And then it would be much more profitable to bring them back later. It's not unfathomable. I think it's a really complicated game, to be honest. And I don't think it's a really complicated game because of the quote unquote rules. I think it's a really complicated game because of all of the wrinkles, all of the yes buts. And I really think this is something that in many ways has been really propped up by Board Game Arena in terms of having systems that remind you stuff, the systems that tell you what you can and what you can't do. But I also think that the presentation has been really hampered by it and the fact that this is an ENO tool designed game. We've not mentioned the fact that it looks pretty beautiful, to be honest. It'd be impossible to say until you see it in person, but the art design looks gorgeous. And you can see when you're zooming in that actually there is some nice little iconography within the board to remind you of some of the edge case rules and little bonuses that you might otherwise not be thinking about which are just not really visible on board game arena you know when you're looking at an entire board that's six inches by six inches but for such a strategic game it's interesting to me that even after three games i was still forgetting little rules that ended up being crucial to my plan and ended up having my plan collapse quite massively (laughs) and it's all like oh well if this can't happen then this happens and oh you can't do this because but even despite that i don't resent any of the complexity that i've had to wrestle with you know yeah i think that the actions are really quite simple like each turn is very straightforward and quite snappy especially in board game arena most of the time you won't take income from a region to that you then just take your action it's very simple you just put things down you build things like it's yes or no the complexity comes from that huge amount of strategic space to look at and that's exactly what you want in a game like this where all of the chunkiness and all of the grit comes in the scale of the game in terms of what you can do and how you're going to navigate your way through this thing and maybe it's potentially quite analysis paralysis inducing because you do have at the start of the game a spread of you know what are you going to do in this space there are so many options available to you what strategy are you going to pursue and what's optimal in our first game of this i said this is a game where you won't be able to do everything and you have to specialize in something and then i very quickly realized in our subsequent games it's the opposite it's a game that wants you to do everything but just have an edge in one space that's going to carry your strategy but to interface with this game you need to do what it's asking really well and when you do that it's unbelievably satisfying it's not a game that you can necessarily break it's a game that you can just get better at in one little area and that can be your specialty but you're still going to have to do really well at the core puzzle it's it's pushing you towards if that makes sense i think that's it it's not a game you can break but it's a a wave that you can ride i felt like that i felt like the fact that the whole game is basically there ahead of you and the fact that the first move that both players tend to make you can often make the same move exactly for the first couple of rounds and then you have that divergence and you shoot off for a game where you are competing really really brutally you're not really blocking each other that much there's blocking on the map in terms of stopping people from making routes that they need to make to get points 
from one of the many ways you can get points at the end from making routes and creating train lines across America. But apart from that, you really, really just having to completely laser focus on what you were doing and trying to work out what your next turns were going to be and in having an understanding of what was likely to happen next time. Because often, more often than not, and occasionally you get it wrong, but there's a satisfaction of not only having one of your plans come together, but the satisfaction of having a hypothesis about what the other player is going to do for the next two turns and being completely unsurprised when that's what happens is another part of the satisfaction. In the last game, Tom quite expertly just completely blocked me from from getting to San Francisco by just filling up towns and railroad spaces. And it was fine. I knew it was going to happen. It was just as soon as it happened, I just sat there nodding, being like, yep, yep, that's that's (laughs) that's the move. That's the thing to do. Um, And so really, it does just become a fascinating mind game puzzle. And as with all good economic Euro-y things, it feels fabulous when you're riding that wave. But when you stumble, when you stutter, it's awful, but in a great way. Like I remember in the last game, I looking, I was like, oh, we're only halfway through the game. This is amazing. I'm doing really well. And then a piece kind of stopped working in my engine and then it all just sort of hit a sludgy point and it never really recovered in a way which is really interesting. So it's rather than like I broke the game with this explosive strategy, it's more like I rode this horrible wave all the way to the end and I barely fell off. <laughs> <laughs> I think this game really rewards you if you do hit the right, the beats that it wants you to hit in the sense that if you can predict exactly what your opponent's going to do and you can put exactly the right departments into your building and you can make sure that your work is going to move and you plan in advance and you know what region is going to activate. If you do all of that, if you dance to its tune, it has a very pipeline power ramp in pipeline a game that is absolutely fantastic really crunchy euro where in your first few turns you'll be happy if you make like three dollars from shipping an oil to someone this has much the same feeling where your first few turns you'll be lucky if you can put down one building or do six research but in our last game i felt really like i was hitting every beat and i was getting 21 research points every turn which is just like a phenomenal amount to be getting in that game it's it's fantastic it's so it's just butter smooth when you're riding it perfectly and it gets really crunchy and tactical when you fall off that wave and it's just it's so good i'm gushing about this game and there's a fascinating change as well in the fact that most games like this you would see your opponent massively investing in one type of industry or one type of space and then your reaction probably would just be like well i'm going to do something else where in this because you're taking it in turns to dictate what action happens it doesn't work like that you know the reason i failed in the last game was because of the fact that i i took a really strange strategy and the fact that i saw you gone really strongly for research and put all your workers into research and instead of that i took one of the the tracks on the on the map and basically made it so that every time I brought someone back from that area, I was going to get loads of research points. So I kept sending loads of people there to get loads of money when they came back. And then I got money, resources, rewards, and these research points when they all came back. And for a while, this worked really well because it meant I wasn't having to invest the people into research departments. I was getting money for sending them out and resources for sending them out. I was getting extra from bringing them back. And I wasn't keeping up with you in terms of research, but I was using the research to unlock enough new buildings which get pulled out on these cool little tabs from underneath the board that I actually think in the final finished game could be a really slick bit of component work, but who knows? I was getting enough. I was getting by. And the thing is, I stumbled because I couldn't quite get the next bit. But what I failed to do was get another research building that I could use to do something different. Mm. And... If you don't do that, if you don't grab something to make it worth your while when that player inevitably chooses that, then you're just, yeah. The crunch started to happen about two thirds of the way through the game where me trying to um, get some research points from another source 
and saving my workers and my money and my resources for pumping it into other things like construction worked really well in the early game. But it couldn't get away from the fact that maybe a third of the time in the game, you were activating the research action. And then it meant that there were just kept being so many turns where I wasn't really doing much. And that was killer. So it's so strange to have a thing where like it's a, it's a business-based competition where you look at what your competitors are doing and you think, oh, I'll definitely do a bit of that as well. Which is a different way of thinking about it, you know? It's great. It is fabulous, right? It's good. It's good. It's great. But, Matt, we should probably talk about the less than lovely aspects of Carnegie the person that kind of hang over Carnegie the game. Yes, and unfortunately to do this, we're going to have to talk a little bit about history. Who are you, Quins? Get out of here. So I know a lot of people are not interested in this sort of thing, but I think it's important to just talk about this for a brief moment. Every medium that we enjoy, whether it's film, TV, games, has a point of weakness. And that weakness is usually the area that gets leaned on really heavily and constantly, so much that we often don't pay any attention. You know, in video games, we've got shooting people. And it's it's tricky because of the fact that obviously shooting people is not good. I don't think anyone would argue against that. But also in video games, it's a fantastic mechanic. It's a really simple mechanic that is really satisfying. It works really well. In board games, I think maybe the thing that we have is historical depictions of periods of boom and growth. There's no one questioning that it isn't absolutely satisfying to turn one steel into 20 steel into 500 billion dolos. It's just a great mechanic. It's really fun. But what we do find is that often when you have games that take a period of history and celebrate this boom period, it's a little bit weird, especially if you look at it through the lens of knowing history of that period and the lens of what the world is like right now and where we might like the world to be in the future. So Carnegie, as a story, he was a penniless immigrant. He came from Scotland and he went on to become known as a captain of industry. A bunch of gentlemen in America who did crazy things and completely turned over the entire industry. They were also known as robber barons by some people. So there's already a bit of a (laughs) divide in terms of like, is it a captain of industry? Is it a robber baron? Interestingly, you may have heard the term robber baron, but actually the term first came about to mean something that we would probably think of as being quite good. They were described as being these horrible characters by the landed elite of that era. People Mm. who'd been around for ages, who'd had all this money and resources for years, who saw these competitive new characters, these people who turned up and started doing things more efficiently and cheaper as being malicious. They, they literally were like, what are you doing? Like, why are you turning up and doing what I do, but for cheaper? <laughs> the only reason they could see that somebody would do that was because they actually were being malicious towards them, which is kind of eye-opening. It's like, why are you taking my business away? Why do you hate me? Because they before then, it was just how it worked. They run this business, they make money. The meaning of Robert Barron has obviously changed a little bit. And it was Vanderbilt, who was one of the great American captains of industry, who was first described as a robber baron, who actually is one of the only people who was involved heavily in the building of steamships that is actually remembered. Because steamships, it turns out, were not as popular long term as railroads, both in the world and in board games which Vanderbilt <laughs> shifted into. And that's a key thing, right? You know, you can talk about like, oh, you know, do we need to know about the history of stuff? But in a way, yeah, because in the same way that a lot of the people who were like Vanderbilt, who were very successful, who were very well known in the 1800s, 
are not remembered at all today is just because what we know now is what has been chosen to be remembered, which is what has been propagated. And that is relevant to not just books, but everything. So Carnegie has been remembered for his philanthropy and the fact that he donated over $350 million of his wealth to charitable causes, which is which is huge. Like he sold his steel company in 1901 for 480 million dollars, and so you know you look at this, you're like 480 million dollars donated 350. On paper, wow, incredible, that's amazing. But you know the thing we have to be clear about here is that he still had after that sale alone, and that's not including any wealth he may have accrued before that or around that, 130 million dollars left, which in today's money has an equivalent value of $4 billion. So that's Crikey. that's still a lot of money knocking around. You know, it's like, it's this idea of I've, I've given away everything. It's like $4 billion, you know? In Scotland, he had a holiday home, which was an actual castle with a private power station in the 1900s. That's, that's pretty serious. And then in the last few years of his life, he bought and moved into Shadowbrook Mansion, which is basically an American castle. It burnt down in the 1950s, at which point 150 people lived in it. So he lived in a house that could house 150 people. People. So there's some elements to this idea of philanthropy and what we remember. And arguably, there is a lot to be said for the idea of, well, yes, people like Carnegie gave a huge amount yeah. back, but they gave back what they'd kind of taken. And that's that's the element that's a bit weird. It's like, okay, yes, they, yes, they made a lot of things, but they got the wealth in the first place by taking it. And in the case of Carnegie, his initial wealth came from basically genuinely crooked involvement in the stock market with his previous employers. He was literally crooked um, for a while. And actually that helped him a lot in terms of making his wealth from his own company because he knew how people who were his managers and beneath him might actually break the law and take advantage to make money from him. So he set up systems to stop other people from doing what he'd done before. But maybe that's just like, ah, smart and good. But again, kind of iffy. And really, when we think about this stuff, when you look at it, a lot of it comes down to the fact that people talk about the Homestead Strike, which happened nine years prior to the sale of his steel company in 1901. And this was an incident whereby workers were striking after wages had been basically locked and hours had been increased. And at this period in history, there were a huge amount of unions because regulations had just gone and people were having to work tremendously long hours. And things after the Civil War in America had really been ramping up the work of factories, etc. So unions were a big deal. And although Carnegie was not there at the time, his next in command basically had permission to deal with a strike as they saw fit, which involved basically having 300 Pinkertons who were effectively a cross between mercenaries and spies who would beat people up or, or form militias if they needed to, but mostly would just pretend to be normal people and go around being like, hey, who's in for that striking, eh? Who's in charge of the... And basically would find out who was in charge of union business and sort them out. But in this case, hired 300 mercenaries to turn up on a raft to go and try and sort out and break the strike, resulted in a massive war between the Union and the locals against the Pinkertons, in which the Pinkertons were basically beaten. The locals then didn't want to do anything to stop the Unions because actually, you know, they were on side of them and they didn't have any interest in helping out the company. So 
an actual like militia was sent in to take back control and in the process of this a militia of, i think around a thousand people were sent in to just completely knock back the union it destroyed really the union's power within that area of america for a long time both because a lot of them were injured but also it was followed up with lots of legal challenges with lots of people being charged for uh harm and damages and in some cases murder because yeah like it was pretty hairy lots of people died in these fights it was really unpleasant all right i'm not going to pretend that it's like it was people just with placards saying we want nicer things it was horrible right but the key thing is is this was a, a tremendously awful chain of events which resulted in the unions being knocked down losing their power and resulted in after that working conditions getting worse and you have to account for that and the fact that this happens the unions lose the workers lose militia army gets sent in to take control working conditions get worse pay gets worse everyone has to plow on with that nine years later you sell that company for a tremendous amount of money right so you know that money that value came from that to a degree like that that was boosted by that event even if it marred his reputation quite substantially at the time it all feels very much how the sausage is made with all of this wealth like yes carnegie was this philanthropist he did give huge swathes of money away to these public infrastructure products but they were all emblazoned with his name and these ideals of a great man doing great work and it is not carnegie that did that great work it is every individual under him whose labor value was pilfered and whose union rights were suppressed. From what I understand, Carnegie was immensely pro-union in print, but deeply anti-union in practice, when the reality of what a union is actually occurs. And the, the, the blame gets shifted onto this advisor who dealt with this, this strike. But at the end of the day, is he not, you know, employed too by Carnegie? Is he not responsible? Ultimately, the strike was 143 days, right? Like, at no point do Carnegie's words about pro-union, an individual man's worth, come into this. He just lets it simmer, and then he sells the company for this huge profit. And bringing it all the way back to the game itself, this game unquestionably, throughout the rulebook, values this man. There's quotes out the rulebook, and the first of them is, success is the power with which to acquire whatever one demands of life without violating the rights of others. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that is so that is ridiculous and there's another one that says it marks a big step in your development when you come to realize that other people can help you do a better job than you could do alone and that's that's it's sick it's farcical <laughs> and, and for me really this whole method that we had historically of people who've made tremendous amounts of wealth like you know sickening amounts of money taking advantage of people either very very directly or quite directly then leaving all of this money and giving all this money to charitable things this philanthropy work to me it's always felt very similar to the practice that was in the catholic church for many many years of indulgences this idea of paying money to the church to ensure that you were going to go to heaven which was something that happened for a very long time so you know you could do bad things but then it was fine you just chuck the church and dosh and that money would ensure your ticket into heaven. It feels a bit like that, but for a more science-based audience of, well, if you do this, then your legacy will be fine. And I think that's the tricky part of it. And I think really the more you read about Carnegie, the more you discover actually he's a really odd character. He's an interesting character. There's clearly a lot of conflict within who he was and what he said. And I don't think it's as simple as painting him as being like this, this incredible visionary creator of of wealth and jobs and prosperity but i also don't think it's completely accurate to be like well he was evil and you know it's like he was clearly a confused person in some regards he really did believe 
I think that he was a good person, that he had God behind him, that he was this godly figure who knew better. And a lot of the problems stem from the fact that he did want poor people to have better lives, but he genuinely believed that that it had to be him that was doing it. So he had to take all of the wealth so that he could give people back what they need. And I think that this rubbed me up particularly badly in this game in the fact that, you know, we do still live in a world where you see people arguing that like, oh, you know, poor people don't know how to spend their money, where rich people do know how to spend their money. And it's it's not true. People saying, well, if you give a poor person a hundred dollars, they'll just spend it on food. It's like, yeah, it's because people need to eat. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> um, not everyone could afford to invest the $100 into Bitcoin, you know. So I think it's still a really relevant conversation. And actually, the relevance of these captains of industry, they're actually not just this board game, you know. We're bringing this up now because I feel like the current years and the current times we live in have a lot more time for reflecting on these things and looking at the world. You know, when we're all trapped inside a lot more looking out the window, it's a good time to be thinking about the world outside and the kind of world outside we want to return to when these current events sort of move on. And the legacy of these captains of industry that so many board games are based on was threefold. You know, they created a huge class of lifelong wage workers who were dependent on the whims of corporations, which was a new thing. Before that, people were just like, ah, oh, you know, I'll run a farm, I'll run a little shop. This idea of you're now going to get paid a wage and you're going to work and you're dependent on getting employed and having a wage and this is the nature of work now. That was a new thing back then. Yeah, And yeah. it did lead to unions becoming a really vital force and a really powerful force during this transition of life, of how life worked. It also led to prices being substantially reduced. Everything got cheaper. Everything got a lot cheaper. So actually, across the board for a lot of people, this idea of prosperity, there was truth to that, you know? Like, they changed the way that systems work. They made them more efficient. They made them more profitable. And some of that was passed on to people and passed on to the world, right? So it wasn't all bad. They also, however, mainly, they've changed how we think about the world. Prior to this period of history, the idea of those who were on the, the political left arguing that the government should be more involved in people's lives was laughable. That was just like, you'd never hear anyone suggesting that. It took this for people to go, well, hang on though, how about maybe we need people to control these, these corporations? <laughs> but even that was just, it was a big, big shift. And I think that the issue about this is you can look at these three things. And in my mind, these three things are just facts. These are the legacy of these people that often lots of board games will celebrate and venerate. But you have to look at the legacy of these things. You have to look at not just what happened at the time, but what we've been left with now. And I mean, a key thing is if you look at the real value of money today, look at the buying power of what a dollar is in the 1900s. Because you'll see that actually like it was pretty good in the 1900s and it remained pretty good. Up until like the 1970s, it didn't change that much. And then look at it dive down into the 1970s. You know, it bobbled around for a while, but it was quite good. And then it got worse. However, you look at the power of unions within the world today and how successfully they've been demonized in the minds of most people. And yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing in the fact that a lot of the benefits of these people historically are not really present anymore. What we have is their vision of the world. Their vision of the world is just what we see as normal now. People working longer and longer hours and harder and harder for less money that's worth less. That's just that's just how it is. But that was the vision of these people. They built yeah. this world that we live in right now, right? And I think that the difficult thing about this is when you have a piece of medium that is is openly just celebrating the story of somebody from this long ago, and it's really hard to find the stories otherwise. If you Google for Carnegie, you're going to find lots of web pages that are either trust funds set up by them, uh, charitable institutions set up by them, or just people, companies trying to riff off of the good name because it was he's broadly seen as being this great character. It's very hard to find the history of it. And even this horrific part with the whole strike and the violence, it's a footnote. It's a footnote in a story of a boy done good who made a lot of money and gave it all to charity. And 
I think the issue is, is that the stories we tell about things from the past are going to be echoed in the way that we tell stories about tomorrow. You know, it's like we're already seeing within our world, like characters in business and politics who successfully paint themselves as normal people who worked hard and did well. And yet it doesn't take much digging today, like right now about these people with the information we have live to discover the hedge funds, the emerald mines, the blood money filtered through generations of trust funds. You know, even Bill Gates was seen as being a merciless tech monopolist and now he's a global health philanthropist he's beloved and actually in a way now people are starting to demonize him maybe because he's been doing such an efficient job of whitewashing his past <laughs> that people are now coming up with conspiracy theories about why he's doing so much philanthropy and health and they think he's spreading corona and all this and it's all complete nonsense and it's because you know he's, he's gone he's almost gone too far of being seen as being a good character but i you know apologize to anybody who's listening to this thinking ah, this is a podcast about board games you've just talking a what long time about this but this is something we keep running into in terms of stories from history of characters from the 1800s, from the 1900s being presented uncritically with mechanics in the game that are not representative of of the reality of what happened. And it's just a bit disappointing. It's it's hard for me to understand how something that is this mechanically solid can have either not been researched much or researched in a way that just continues to whitewash over the reality of this stuff and the legacy that it's left. It's really funny because I still love this board game. I think this board game is great. But the more we kind of propagate things from the past that weren't true, the, the more like... I think I'd say if, if anybody's listening to this and they're a bit like, oh, you know, come on, whatever. I'd ask how you'd feel about it if I told you that your great great grandchild is going to be playing a board game celebrating the saintly Jeff Bezos and how yes, how much yeah. of a, a perfect impact he had in the world and how we wouldn't be where we are today without him. Because the same thing is likely to happen in the yeah, sense absolutely. that Jeff Bezos will leave this world having donated huge swathes of money to charity and people won't remember how the sausage was made. People on Mars will see him as a god, you know? <laughs> like, it... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so strange because ultimately it does feel like this game could just have a different theme and this conversation wouldn't need to happen. Fundamentally, it wouldn't need to be set in this period of history. It feels like a game that could have even more history and then it would be interesting historically and as a game, or it could just have none at all and it would just be a really good game. But it sits in this weird middle ground where it doesn't have quite enough history to make it an historical game, but it has enough to leave this slightly sour taste in my mouth at the end. It reminds me, weirdly, a lot of the movie The Greatest Showman. <laughs> Um, this hyper-fantastical version of of capital and of the way that people made money in this time that didn't need to have a historical theme, but it did, and now I feel weird. What it comes down to is it's tricky in the fact that like often when you have people saying, look, can we not talk about politics and history because we just want to enjoy this? We just want to kind of enjoy the escapism and the fun of things. And I think like I'm kind of on the same page as that. And I think that's why it's, it's disappointing when you have stuff like this, that by failing to admit the reality of the situation, it's kind of doing the opposite. It's like dredging it up in front of you. You know, all, all it yeah. takes in these games is to acknowledge that when you've got games that have colonialism and all this stuff like just to acknowledge within the material somehow like this was not really great that's what it takes and by doing that you can maybe enjoy it more but otherwise it's it's kind of these things of like just read the room you know it's like <laughs> to, to have something where it's like hey do you want to play this funny economic puzzle game hell yeah it's got interleaking levels and you're going around America and building railways oh this sounds brilliant and hey well you know isn't like union breaking and uh, collecting huge quantities <laughs> of wealth before you die 
absolutely brilliant and it's like oh ooh. it's just it's just ooh. like <laughs> and it's funny it's just it's just like read the room come on like for me it's like in the same way that some people i'm sure will be thinking i you know i didn't need a history lesson in my board game podcast i'm mentioning this stuff today because i found it really interesting i found some of this stuff yeah. interesting when i was reading up on it but in the same way i don't need pro robber baron propaganda within board games i don't need to be reminded of that you know i, I don't need to play a fun puzzle game whilst being reminded that the patterns of history which have led us to venerate and build statues <laughs> of slave traders in places like Bristol in the UK are probably going to be repeated by today and we're going to have like Mark Zuckerberg being venerated character <laughs> Cast in, the in gold. Yeah, like I don't need to be reminded of that. That's the reality of it. Yeah. I don't need to be reminded of it. So that's why we felt the need to talk about that. So that's Carnegie. It's both the man. That's Carnegie. And the game. We we can't review Carnegie as a game yet because obviously it's not out for a long time. And obviously I'm excited to play this with three or four to see how, yeah. the, how the mind games and second guessing is affected by that. Oh, I bet it'll get pretty horrible <laughs> but of course we can review Carnegie as a person because he's been dead for a really long time and he's going to get like probably a 6 out of 10 from me um, 6 is very generous I think it is pretty generous but you know I'll give him a 5 you give him a 5 that seems fair I think I mean I'm, I'm 5. giving 3. him 5.3 I'm giving him a video game 6 so it's quite bad oh wow that's like a that's a 3 uh, it's probably about a 3 out of 10 yeah <laughs> and I think that's it you know it's like let's just if you're gonna do history in your stuff then just look at it read it like it's complicated it's not as simple it's not as simple as it looks well matt there's actually a quote right at the end of the rule book uh from the designer and it says the following this game only loosely evokes andrew carnegie's achievements whilst he was incredibly successful carnegie's business methods have also been subject to some controversy whatever your stance there can be no question that carnegie was an important figure in american history <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 and on that note we should end this most 129th episode of the shut up and sit down podcast sorry we rambled for ages about game and about history into your ears but you deserve it i honestly just got really excited about it and the fact that i started reading up about this stuff and it led me to realize that actually this is a really complicated and interesting part of history um and i just think it's like it deserves to be celebrated. I thought the fact that Robert Baron was initially like used as a term by aristocrats to be like, why are you taking our money from us? What do you lo- what, why would you do this? It was, was just fascinating. I really enjoyed that. Uh, if you're not interested in history, though, that's fair enough. And we'll see you next time for a podcast that will almost definitely just be about board games. Hold on, let me look at the schedule and I can tell the listeners at home how much of the podcast will be about history. Maybe, maybe none. Maybe none. Maybe none. Maybe none. Maybe none. Maybe none. It's a Brewster promise. Oh, <laughs>